good morning, everyone. Glad you are here with us. Beautiful fall week that we've had. Hope you've enjoyed it. You know, I, I was thinking this week, I mean, it's so, always so pretty around, you know, Virginia is such a beautiful state. And Romans 8, this is just a, this is a freebie right here. But Romans 8 talks about how all creation groans because it is, uh, it says that in verse 22, Romans 8, because it was subjected to futility, sin, the fall. We live in a fallen world, and all of creation is impacted by that. But my goodness, I mean, if you drive and see the beautiful fall foliage and, and just the fall smell in the air, and it just, even in a fallen world, God graces us with uh, such pleasure. Um, it's a good God. Tells us, uh, by the way, that uh, we're at the end of October. That means November is right around the corner, which means there's an election coming up. Um, so just throw that out. We, as citizens of this country, what a great opportunity. There are local and state things that uh, elect uh, issues and people to vote for. So I hope you you exercise your right to do that. Those local elections are very important. And by the way, we've got a couple of FBCers who are running for positions on local school boards here in Freddie County. So that's, um, you know, getting involved in the process. So please uh, don't, um, don't uh, take that uh, privilege that we have, uh, have lightly. It was May 13th, 1940, and the newly elected Prime Minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill, was giving one of his famous speeches to the House of Commons. Um, the world was um, in a tailspin of, um, of, of trials. Uh, Nazi Germany was, uh, was on the move. Hitler was on the march. Um, the Europe was falling nation by nation. In fact, by June, Great Britain would be standing alone because France would have fallen by then. And um, Churchill stood up before these British lawmakers and he uttered that famous part of his speech, I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. He didn't paint a very rosy picture. I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. The road ahead for the British people and for the whole world was paved with, with tribulation. The Apostle Paul, when he was um, visiting some of the churches that he had planted, it's recorded in Acts chapter 14, he'd come back to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, it was difficult days for the early church, and he says this to the early church, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It is as if Paul was saying, I offer you nothing but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, over these next few weeks, we're going to be digging deeper into the, the book of Acts that we've already finished studying, but there were some <clears throat> topics or some key themes that we wanted to kind of come back to, 
and dig just a little deeper in, and one of those themes is this theme of suffering. It's all over the book of Acts. It's everywhere. Um, in chapter 5 of the book of Acts, Peter and the disciples are arrested. They, they're put in prison. They're flogged for their faith in Jesus Christ, and they're told, speak no longer of this name. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is martyred because of his faith in Jesus. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says that a great persecution began and the Christians were, were, were um, forced out of Jerusalem and scattered throughout the Roman Empire. You go to Acts chapter 12 and James is killed by Herod Agrippa and Peter is again imprisoned and is about to lose his life, it would seem. Over and over again, that's what the early church faced, tribulation. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul was saying before, the ultimate victory is won and realized because it was already secured when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Ultimate victory was never in doubt. The kingdom of God was coming. It was a matter of when was it going to return here on earth. But in the meantime, before we enter that kingdom, Paul says, there's going to be a lot of tribulation. There's a lot of suffering. Now, who better to talk about that suffering than Peter himself, the one who endured so much in those early years and ultimately gave his life for the cause of Christ? And so this morning, as we dig deeper a little bit in this theme of suffering, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter, or Acts, 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm just going to look at a couple of verses unprecedented persecution and suffering was about to be unleashed on the early church because of the madman Nero, who was the emperor of Rome. Something was coming down here in Rome, and it was going to spell great tribulation for the church. Peter doesn't shy away from the fact, as he writes this epistle to these early believers, he doesn't shy away from the fact that there's going to be hard times ahead. He tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Or in the next chapter, chapter 2, he says, You've been called for this purpose, since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. It's coming. It's going to happen. It happened to Jesus. It's going to happen to us. He said in chapter 3, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And then there's chapter 4. He kind of builds and crescendos, and he tells us in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Two verses, and Paul or Peter packs a, a punch in these two verses. He says, first of all, we have an example to follow, and it's Jesus. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, we are never more like Christ when we suffer like Christ. 
Here at Fellowship Bible Church, our mission statement is to prepare and deploy dependent disciples of Jesus Christ who changed their world for Christ as we're being changed by him. And a disciple of Jesus is someone who looks like Jesus. That's what we want to do here at Fellowship Bible Church. We want to help each other look more like Jesus. We often say in our membership classes or our guest welcome uh, events, um, why do we exist here out here on 3217 Middle Road? Why, why, why do we exist? To help each other look more like Jesus at the end of the year than we look at the beginning of the year. That's what the goal of it all is, to be Christ-like. And suffering is all part of that. Peter is saying we have an example to follow. As Christ suffered in the flesh, he set the example, and we are to follow in his footsteps. We have an example to follow, and it's Jesus. Second of all, he says, and we have a command to obey. He says there, arm yourself with the same purpose. Arm yourself with the same purpose. It's a, it's a command, and it's a military term. Arm yourself. Put on the proper armor or, or utilize the proper weaponry. Arm yourself with the same purpose. And what is that proper, what are the proper weapons? What's that, what's that armor? What, 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 how are we to arm ourselves? Which, by the way, Paul or, and, and Peter, but they both uh, New Testament writers always talk about spiritual warfare. They use this military term because we are in a real battle if we had um, <clears throat> those special glasses that could see the unseen realm in the world in which we live each and every day we would be absolutely mortified at the powers of darkness that are arrayed against the people of God so what's what is that that we are to arm ourselves with well, Peter's talking about arm yourselves with that same purpose. And it's a word that um, is tied with the word for our, our minds. It means have the, have the same mindset as Jesus, the same attitude, the same purpose, the, the, the mind, the attitude of Jesus. And what is that proper attitude? What, what was the attitude? What was the mindset of Jesus? Remember when he was... Sweating, as it were, drops of blood in the garden just before he's crucified. Just before he was about to endure incredible suffering, not just physically, but spiritually, because our sin was about to be placed on him. He was going to be separated from the Father because of our sin. If possible, remove this cup from me. But what was his attitude? What was his mindset? Not my will, but your will be done. Arm yourself with that proper mindset, that mindset that says, I'm willing to endure suffering for your greater glory, Father. I'm willing to endure the pain of this life so that you can be glorified, so that I can understand your will and obey it. Jesus said, my will is not to do my own purposes, it's to do the will of the Father to follow what God the Father had called him to do. A mindset of willingness, even in great loss, even in great suffering, to follow after God wholeheartedly and honor and glorify him with our life. 
Paul wrote in, to the Corinthian church, he says, you know, we've been bought with a price. Jesus died and redeemed us from the slave market of sin. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, he says, glorify God in your life. Whatever we do in word and deed, do it all to the glory of God. We've been redeemed by precious blood so that our lives will be lived in honor and glory to him. Arm yourselves, he said, <clears throat> with that same mindset, with that same purpose, with that same attitude. We have an example to follow. Look at Jesus. We have a command to obey. Now arm yourself with that same mindset. Because the third thing he says in this uh, two little verses is that um, we, there, there's great value when we do this. There's incredible impact when we do this. He says, because he who has suffered in the flesh, get this, has ceased, is through with sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. That's, that, that, that's amazing words. He who has suffered, who goes through tribulation in this life, whether it's things that we brought upon ourselves because of our own stupidity, our own sinfulness, choices that we've made that have caused pain in our life, or, or the suffering and the sorrows that happen to us when we're totally innocent of it and just it's done to us by the circumstances of life or by evil people. But when we suffer, there is something sanctifying. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts, for one's personal desires, but for the will of God. So what does he mean by that ultimately? Well, obviously he's not saying that in our suffering we reach a point where we no longer sin. You know, we reach a level of sinless perfection where... Uh, and by the way, that, that is, some people do believe that. When I was a pastor back in Nebraska in that little rural church, there was a group of us pastors in some of the local communities that would get together regularly and, you know, shoot the breeze and talk shop. And one of the guys in a particular church, I'll never forget him saying that he had reached the point of sinless perfection. And I, I started chuckling, and I was not as suave and, and wise at that time. I just started laughing. I, I said, give me five minutes with your wife and I'll probably disprove that. What, what do you mean you've reached sinless perfection? That's not what Peter's saying here. But it does mean that when we suffer, that when God does that work of refining us, of burning out the dross in our life, he is purifying us. There is some purifying impact to pain. There's something sanctifying in suffering. God does that work to make us more like Christ. And as we put that suffering and those tribulations and those trials of life, whether it's, again, our own doing that causes it or, or the doing of someone else or the circumstances of life that bring pain into our life, as we have that proper perspective if we have the right mindset that we've been armed with, that same purpose, Lord, help me to see you. Help me to understand your will in this. 
the rest of our time in life, it's a progressively growing understanding of that. The life of Christ is more and more reproduced in our life. We become more and more Christ-like. There is a purifying power in pain. There's a sanctifying um, um, value to suffering as we follow Christ's example, become more and more conformed into his image. It's a mindset that gets created into us that says, I'm willing to suffer the loss of all things. That's what Paul said in Philippians. Then I may know him. It's a mindset that says temporal things are not nearly as important as eternal things. It's a mindset that says I will, I will be willing to suffer all things so that Jesus' Jesus's life can be more and more show up in my life, that I can be more and more transformed into his image. It's a mindset that says, to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's a mindset that says, you could take all the things of this world that I think I can find pleasure in, all the things that I've been trying to pursue to, to give me those pleasures of life, and you can throw them all away, and suffering has a way of stripping all that away from us. There's, a, again, a sanctifying effect to suffering. And in the midst of, of losing all that, if I can gain Jesus more and more, it'll be worth it. It's like Johnny Erickson Tata said, I'd rather be in this wheelchair with Jesus than standing on two strong feet without him. That's the mindset, the proper mindset, that there is greater joy gained by knowing him than the amassing of all the earthly pleasures. Arm yourself with the same attitude because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the desires, the lusts of men. It's getting stripped away. All those earthly treasures, all that mindset it says, if I just didn't have that spouse, I would be happier. <laughs> if my kids just acted this way, life would go better for me. If I could just have that house, if these people would just run this country my way, <laughs> things would go better. The desires of men don't necessarily have to be bad. But when those desires of men take precedent over the will of God, they're bad every time. And suffering has a way of putting all of that in proper perspective if we follow the mindset of Christ. If we understand that God has a purpose and a plan for the suffering to make us more like Jesus, that these things that happen in our life can be covered over with his grace and his mercy and it has a sanctifying effect. If we can get that proper attitude and that proper perspective, like Jesus not my will but thy will be done. So I think Peter is simply teaching these suffering saints that 
are about to endure even greater suffering under the hand of Nero. He's simply trying to teach him, don't shun suffering. The goal in life is not to be free of tribulation. Through many tribulation, Paul told the churches, we're going to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. Count on it. It's a fall of the world. The whole world is, is held in the grip of the evil one. The goal is not to be tribulation-free. The goal is not to be trial-free. The goal is not pursuing of my happiness as I've defined it. The goal is to look more like Jesus and honor and glorify him. That's why we're here. And radiate that glory to this world who doesn't see it and may only see it through our life as it's being crushed, as it's being hurt, as it's being damaged by the sin of others or by my own sinful choices and then seeing Christ radiate his glory through it, through a broken vessel. To suffer, says Peter, in reality is, is to experience God's grace. He, he, he wants to take us and he wants to chip away at us like, and Peter will say this earlier in chapter 2, like living stones He's fitting us ultimately for this holy temple. He's chipping away at us. There's power, purifying power in pain. There's, there's sanctifying grace in suffering. Peter put it this way. Let me read those verses. Chapter 2, verse 4, And coming to him as to, living, to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood in order to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scriptures. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. God wants to do a work in our life. He, he wants to chisel away those, those desires of the flesh, those, those mindsets that say, if I just had this, if I could just pursue this, if I just owned that, I would find, if I just had this level of health, then I would really be happy. No, he, he's, he's building something of greater glory. A, a holy priesthood, a spiritual house, so that we will offer him spiritual sacrifices, the, our life given to him in honor and glory to him, that for which we've been redeemed. And when we do that, and when we, when, when we divest ourselves, our all, all of our desires, all of our understandings of where happiness come from, and begin to pursue him wholeheartedly, we find he, he never disappoints. He never disappoints. We always will find in him what he's offering. Joy everlasting. Peace beyond anybody's imagination. Love. The fruit of the Spirit. God is making us into his holy spiritual house and his chief means of doing that is to pick up his hammer and chisel and in the trials and the sufferings of life, he'll create a masterpiece. Joseph Sohn was a 
pastor of one of the largest Romanian Baptist churches. In the time of communism, he was harassed, he was persecuted endlessly in the 1970s and the 1980s, beaten in prison. Eventually, in the mid-1980s, he was, he was forced out of Romania. They could have killed him, but they knew, the communists knew, if we put this guy to death, we don't need one more martyr on our hands that will f- stir up the flames of Christianity. So they just booted Joseph Sohn out of the country of Romania. A few years after he came here to the United States, Lisa and I had the privilege of, of, of hearing him personally and meeting him. Um, an amazing godly man, still living today, close to 90, I believe. Um, I, I've shared this little portion of his message that was recorded. I've sh- I think about every 10 years I play this at Fellowship Bible Church. It's just so good to listen to. And he refers back to this passage of Peter, of the, the stone cutters, of how God uses it and used it in his life. It's worth listening to again. Would you listen to Joseph Sohn? What on earth is Peter talking about? He's talking in some uh, metaphoric way, in such a way that uh, if you don't understand what he is uh, really having in mind, this is meaningless. So let me translate Peter. He has in mind the way Solomon's temple was built. It was the most amazing way of building a building. They had architects who calculated every stone that was needed in their temple. Not only the walls, but the stones were calculated, each one of them. Then they had 80,000 stone cutters who went in a shift in mountains, staying three months in the quarry, cutting and polishing every stone, and then 80,000 others went up for three months. And they brought the stones on the building site perfectly cut and polished, so that when they started to build, There was no hammer and chisel used. They only assembled the building. Now, uh, something strange happened. Apparently, the first stone that was brought there was such a strange shape that that mason, that builder that uh, was receiving the stones to arrange them there, maybe just laughed at that and said, this is a crazy thing, and he just threw that stone in the bush. Well, when they assembled the temple, they came toward the end, and they needed the stone to catch all the others together. And there was no stone. Now, that builder who who saw what they needed now, apparently remembered. Wait a minute, that stone which I threw in the bush, that would fit exactly here. Wait a minute, we have the stone, but I I rejected it. And he went and he took it and they put it there and they even made a psalm. 
was a song about the stone rejected by the builders that they came to be put at the top of the building. And that stone is Christ. Now, all the other stones are we. Now, what does Peter want to say with this? Because he obviously uses this as a lesson for us, a spiritual lesson. Well, here is what he says. You know, at the moment, you are in the stone quarry. One day we are going to be assembled in a place where we shall be a spiritual temple. All of us will be the house of God, and God will dwell in his temple. But when we are there, there will be no chiseling there. The chiseling is being done in the quarry. Right now, actually, you are in the quarry. And whatever happens to you today is God using his hammers and chisels on you to chip off uh, your rough corners to fit in the spiritual building. It was years ago in Romania when I understood this concept. And you know, when a preacher understands a concept, he makes a sermon. Uh, so I, right then, I was going through terrible situation. It was orchestrated by the secret police there, trying to sort of destroy my character. And uh, letters were going to the members of the church, depicting me as a monster. I mean, the things that I read in some of those letters made me sick. And I said, if people believe only 5% of what is in these letters, I'll still be the ugliest person in the world. And it was then that I understood this concept. So in that sermon, I said, now, you have received those letters. You should know they are not written by my enemies. I came to the conclusion that they don't have enemies. Only my father has stone cutters for me. You should know that because of these stone cutters, I am milder, uh, kinder, more modest, more humble, more considerate. You see, there are so many character traits that God is building in me through these stone cutters of mine. But I am a stubborn stone and they have to use huge hammers and huge chisels for this. But don't worry. They're not enemies. You have a better pastor because of them. A few months later, when another uh, trouble started, one of my men came to me and he said, Pastor, I understand your stone cutter started to work on your game. <laughs> I spoke on this in a church here in America on a Sunday evening. And Monday morning, a medical doctor asked me to go and have a lunch with him. And there at lunch, he told me that that Sunday evening story about the stonecutters had the most amazing healing effect on his family. He told me that he invested all his money, a million dollars, into a building site. Somebody was dishonest, they went bankrupt, he lost everything, and he was on the point of selling his house to pay the last debts. He had a grown-up daughter who was furious to have such a stupid daddy 
who wasted a million dollars, and this was bitterness and quarrel in the home. But last night, the man said, my daughter came to me and said, Daddy, I'm sorry. I understand now we are in the quarry. God is working on us. After we had lunch, he took me to see the building site where he lost a million. He drove on that half-finished road very slowly to show me half-finished houses. With a deep voice, he said, Pastor, this is my quarry. This is where God is working on me. I smiled in myself and I said, hey, God had quarries in America too. I thought God had quarries only in Romania. At that point, was about two years after we came uh, to America, my daughter was only 10, and uh, she kept telling me that one of the girls in the school made her life miserable, throwing her out because she was a foreigner. You know how kids are. One Sunday evening when I preached near Wheaton, where we live, I took my family with me and I spoke on this stone cutters. On the way home, I just heard Dorothy burst in and said, Daddy, about your stone cutters, does that mean that Valerie is my stone cutter? Tears came in my eyes. I almost lost the direction of the car. Uh, here was this little girl applying that for her own life. Now, look around to the people you think that make your life miserable. Those people you think that without them your life would be heaven on earth. <laughs> they are your stone cutters. They are not your enemies, they are God's instruments and you. God is making you through them. Hmm. Making sense of suffering. It's saying God's purposes. It's having that right mindset. It's arming ourselves with that proper perspective, with that attitude. It's, um, it's understanding that God uses suffering to sanctify us, that there's purifying power in pain. I mean, who wants stonecutters in their life? I mean, I, I don't. Seems like it always happens, because even in the, the beauty of a fallen world, it is still a fallen world. We're living in the quarry. We're living in the quarry. But what if God has something of great value that he wants to impart to us while the stonecutters of life are chiseling away? What if God has a, a wonderful plan <clears throat> to bring about something wonderful and beautiful in our life in the midst of the suffering and the tribulations and the trials? What if God's purpose for the stonecutters in our life was to really create a masterpiece that, that reflects glory to Him? A masterpiece that, that ever increasingly or decreasingly views their own personal goals and their own personal happiness, their own personal achievements 
as less and less and less of value and sees God's purposes for their life as the supreme value, his glory supreme above all. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, a quote that I've alluded to many times over the years, he wrote, we can ignore pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And what is God shouting at in that megaphone of pain? He's shouting, it's all about me. It's about my glory. And I'm the giver of all joy. I'm the one where you can find the deepest pleasures of life. It's not in the pursuit of making everything go well for you. It's not not finding your own happiness by your own divine designs. It's trusting me. That's what he shouts. Look at me. See me. You can trust me. Because I, and only I, have your best interests at heart. And God is saying, and I will use the pain and the sufferings of life if you just trust me to chisel away the imperfections and create the masterpiece of Christ formed in us, being shown up to a world who doesn't know him. Peter is simply saying that God's purpose in our suffering is to get us to stop looking and thinking of ourselves and start looking and thinking of him in whose presence is fullness of joy and whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. The poet wrote, I walked a mile with pleasure and she chattered all the way but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. And then I walked a mile with sorrow, and nary a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And what do we learn? What do we learn through the tribulations and the sorrows of life? We learn that God is good. We learn that God is sufficient in all things. We learn that truly in his presence is fullness of joy. And that's not to say we, 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 we look tragedy and, and tribulations in the face and we say, bring it on. You know, I'm, I'm still trying to find, I'm finding the best doctors I can find to deal with my cancer situation. I mean, I'm not going to sit around, twiddle my thumbs and do nothing. But in the midst of all of that, it's, it's Lord, what, what do you want to create in me? What's your purposes in life for me? Well, I know what it is. It's to help me look more like Jesus. It's to help you look more like Jesus. Sorrow walks with us. And we learn that the only means of experiencing the purest joy and the greatest intimacy with God 
is when we walk that road of tribulation. And when we do, God does a, a powerful work of purification, a sanctifying impact in our life. I like how Larry Crabb in his book, Shattered Dreams, and I've quoted this numerous times over the years, he writes, we will not encounter Christ as our best friend, as a source of all true goodness, as the one who provides the sweetest pleasures to our souls until we abandon ourselves to him. And full abandonment, real trust, rarely happens until we meet God in the midst of our shattered dreams until in our brokenness we see him as the only and overflowingly sufficient answer to our soul's deepest cry. And he who arms himself with this same mindset finds that the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, Jesus said, Paul told the churches in the book of Acts, through many trials, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. But we have an example to follow in Jesus, and he'll give us the power to obey the command, arm yourself with that same mindset. And as we do, and as we see him in the midst of it all, there's a powerfully purifying impact. And folks, the most important thing about life in this side of heaven is not how well it goes for me. It's not how happy I will be. It's how my life, whether it's crushed and broken and bruised and hurt, will reflect glory and honor to him because that is why he bought me with his blood. And he bought you with his blood. And he wants to display us as a trophy of his grace. And he'll use us for his glory. During our recent Global Church Week, we had the privilege of being around some wonderful, wonderful fellow believers from around the world. A great time together. And to sit and talk with these folks and to realize, man, they, they have gone through some things that maybe we will never go through in this country. I hope we don't persecution for the name of Christ and suffering and difficult things like Simon and Ruth Yako. Um, we have been blessed to know them for many years now from Nigeria. You realize that there are more Christians killed in Nigeria than in all the other countries of the world combined? I recently read there are like 14 believers a day being martyred in Nigeria. And here's Simon and Ruth that come here, and they minister to us. And we get to see firsthand the work of God in their life in the midst of trials and tribulations. And so what better way to end our service today than to have Simon pray for us and pray for the world? We recorded him two weeks ago, in this prayer. Would you please bow your head as we close this morning and have Simon lead us in prayer. Our Father and our God, 
the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. We want to thank you because you are in control of every part of the world that you have created. And we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and your goodness to all of us, your creation. Lord, we want to pray and call upon your name and to remember our brothers and sisters who are going through suffering all over the world. Our hearts go out to them and we are asking you, O oh Lord, for our brothers who are in Asia who are suffering because of your name, our brothers who are in China, our brothers who, uh, who are in India, our brothers who are in, in Ukraine, Russia, and all over, O oh Lord, we call upon your name, the name that is above all other names, knowing that you are concerned about all of us, especially, O oh God, our brothers in Nigeria, our brothers, O oh God, in the Middle East, who are going through suffering because of your name. We call upon your name, O oh Lord. You have always been with your children. You have always been encouraging your children. You have always been standing with your children. And so, Father, we call upon your name that you will help us even in all our sufferings. May you encourage us through the help of the Holy Spirit. May you continue to quicken us. May you continue, O Lord, to reveal more of yourself to us. And we are praying, asking you, O Lord, that may you, O God, through your mercy, especially to those who are persecuting your children all over the world, we are praying for the revelation of who you are to them other than the dream or in the vision that they will see you just as Paul of Tarsus encountered you on his way to Damascus. We are also praying, Lord, that many people will encounter you along the way so that they will also know you to be their personal Lord and Savior and for them to turn to you and be instruments in your hands. And for your children, Lord, we pray, just as you promised us that you will never leave us nor forsake us, continue to be our dwelling place, continue to be our focus, continue, O oh Lord, to strengthen our faith that will continue in grace and in the knowledge of your word. Reveal more of yourself to us, O oh Lord, that will continue to depend upon you. We thank you for what your son Jesus did on the cross of Calvary for all of us by giving himself to die for our sins. And we are grateful today. We thank you because of the suffering that he had to go through. And we thank you because he did not hide anything from us. He told us that we are also going to face difficulties and suffering here on earth, even as his disciples. We pray that you will help us that we will not give up, but I will continue to trust and to depend upon you. Lord, we thank you for many of our brothers all over the world, our fellow Christians who are praying, even for the persecuted. We pray that you strengthen them too and encourage them. We pray that you bless them abundantly for what they are doing, even in building up your kingdom. Father, whosoever that is going through torments and suffering this hour, Lord, we pray that your healing will come upon them. 
that you will heal them, you will comfort them, you reassure them of your presence. We are grateful, O oh Lord, for all that you are doing all over the world. You promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us, even as your word is always assuring us. Help us, O oh Lord, to stand firm, to be unmovable, to continue to trust in you every day of our lives, knowing, Jesus, you are with us, always as you promise us. Receive all the glory, believing that you will continue to keep us, you will continue to encourage us, until one day that you will all call us to gather before you. We are looking, O oh Lord, unto that day, and we are praying that you sustain us and preserve us. We pray even for our brothers in the Middle East, who are going through suffering like Israel, we are praying, O oh Lord, that you will encourage them. We are praying, O oh Lord, that you quicken them, especially those who have not known you. We pray, O oh Lord, that you will come to your saving knowledge. We are grateful for everything that you are doing all over the world, drawing men and women unto yourself, drawing children unto yourself, drawing youth unto yourself. Receive all the glory, Lord. There is no one like you. Continue to glorify your name and encourage your children. We are grateful because you will never leave us. And we trust in you and we focus on you, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Receive all the glory, Lord, even for standing with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.